Welcome to the U.S.-China Dialogue podcast from Georgetown University. This podcast series explores diplomacy and dialogue between China and the United States during the four decades since normalization of relations in 1979. We'll hear from former ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, and White House advisors who will share how they shape the course of the most complex relationship in international diplomacy today. I'm your host, James Green. Today on the podcast, we talk with Paul Hanley. When he retired from the U.S. Army after two decades of service, Lieutenant Colonel Paul Hanley had become one of the U.S. military's foremost experts on China. At the beginning of his career, he received his second lieutenant bars and was sent to Germany in the twilight of the Cold War in the late 1980s. The dissolution of the Soviet Union and the first Persian Gulf War in 1991 changed the global geostrategic landscape, including the urgent need for militaries to modernize weapons to fight wars of the future. Here's how General Norman Trotskov introduced these smart weapons to the press early in that conflict with Iraq, describing dazzling video showing these precision strikes. Now what you're seeing here is that's the manifold area, the very small area that I talked about, and you're looking right through the nose of the of the guided munition as it's flown straight into the small manifold area to destroy it. That's one. This is the manifold area that was destroyed before. This is the second one. The Chinese People's Liberation Army viewed that conflict with alarm at its own backwardness and embarked on a concerted effort to move away from Mao's theory of a people's war to prepare to fight on the technology-centric battlefield of the 21st century. And for Paul Hanley, those historic events were the backdrop to his shifting military career to focus on China. That career took him to Beijing, the Pentagon, and finally to the apex of U.S. foreign and defense policymaking at the White House National Security Council. Paul served first as a close aide to National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley, then as the director for China during a time when the United States and China were working closely together to try to end North Korea's dangerous nuclear program. From his training as a military officer, his language abilities, his frequent interaction with foreign counterparts, and his first-hand knowledge of how the National Security Council makes policy, Paul brings unmatched insights into key periods of U.S.-China relations. But we start our conversation with Paul's own groundbreaking podcast on China, as the head of the Beijing office of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Paul Henley, great to see you. Thanks for making time. Uh, before getting to your career in the Army and at the White House, I've just got to acknowledge your path-breaking work on this format. That is, your your China and the World mm. podcast is incredibly inspirational. So thank you for that. Well, we were just you. chatting. What number are you up to now? So I think we have about 150, and uh, we've passed the six-year mark. So Amazing. Enjoy doing it, and I'm delighted to be on yours. I've been, as you know, I've been an enthusiastic listener of your podcast, and I've listened to almost all of the episodes and have really enjoyed them. So, Well, thank you. And you've just done an incredible job with the Carnegie Center here. I mean, really bringing it up from scratch to be a, a, a centerpiece for discussion on China's position in the world, really amazing. Well, I appreciate it. You know that one of the first people that I met when I came here in 2010 was you. Uh, to get your advice uh, on how we should build this uh, institution with our Tsinghua partners. And um, your, your advice uh, has always been something that, you know, I've listened to and, and take uh, seriously from when I was in the National Security Council and you were at the State Department in the Policy Planning Office uh, sharing, you know, your own perspectives and advice. Uh, and we did some some interesting things together. So Yeah, let's get to it. Yeah. Um, before getting to your White House time, I wanted to ask about uh, joining the U.S. Army and becoming a foreign affairs officer. 
how did that happen and, and how, what got you on that path? Well, you know, I did ROTC in college and uh, wanted to be a mechanical engineer. And so I went to an engineering school, Clarkson University, and they had a pretty good ROTC program. And I participated uh, in that. I had always planned to do sort of eight years reserve, um, you know, go on the weekends once a month and then spend time in the summer, but get a, a normal engineering job, a civilian job. But, you know, during my experience uh, in ROTC, um, I really enjoyed the leadership aspects of it. Um, I, I, I enjoyed more than I thought I would enjoy uh, participating in uh, the different kind of training opportunities we had over the summer, airborne school, uh, our sort of basic uh, cadet training. Uh, and so uh, after graduation, and I also had decided that I probably wouldn't be an engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, I realized that you know, while uh, I, I wasn't bad in math and, and engineering, I just, it wasn't my sort of calling. And I thought, you know, maybe I should take an opportunity, serve my country for four years, um, go abroad, uh, serve uh, in the army abroad, see the world, um, uh, do my, uh, my commitment to my country, uh, and then move on to something different. Uh, next thing I knew, I turned my four years uh, active duty into 21 years active duty, and it's... Uh, <laughs> It's uh, that's just the way things go. So at some point in your career, either you took a test, an aptitude test for Chinese, or you were told to do that and you seem to do good enough. Can you talk about how you ended up in this track of uh, a foreign affairs officer? No, it's very interesting. You know, you have as an officer, you have your basic um, officer, uh, a basic school where you learn about your branch as a second lieutenant. Um, and then you go back as a captain. And I, I believe it was when I was a lieutenant. Uh, they gave us as one of the many tests that they give uh, when, you, when you join uh, what's called the Defense Language Aptitude Test, the DLAT. I had no idea what it was. Um, I didn't take it very seriously. But while I was taking the test, I found myself enjoying it because you're actually, you're, you're, they, they give you rules and you're building a language during the test, <laughs> and it gets increasingly more complicated. Wow. Mm-hmm. And I, w- I just found myself enjoying it very much <laughs> during the test, and uh, and then came to come to find out I, I scored very well. Uh, and that I think was prior to moving to Germany. And when I was in Germany, I I learned uh, the German language, and I just realized that I had a strong interest in learning languages, uh, and I had a high high DLAT score. So I knew that you know whether I stayed in the army or whether I left the military at some point, I would want to do something international. Uh, I would want to learn another language, um, and I, I started to learn, uh, you know, where my in, after learning that engineering was not my calling, I, I started to get a sense of for what I was interested in. My first tour, I should say, was in uh, in the army was in Germany, and I arrived in the summer of 1989. Wow. And uh, six months later, uh, I was on uh, military maneuvers in Grafenwehr in the eastern side of Germany and came into the cantina in the morning to have breakfast with, um, with my team. Uh, and we picked up the Stars and Stripes newspaper. Uh, and the headline, of course, was the Berlin Wall was crumbling. Um, and a month and a half later, I was standing on the Berlin Wall at midnight on 19, in 1989 wow. on New Year's Eve mm-hmm. and uh, had a huge impact on me um, as I saw the world changing around me. But it really inspired in me this uh, incredible interest in international issues and, and geopolitical issues. 
Wow. So then did you go to the Defense Language Institute in Monterey for your Mandarin training? I did. I had an assignment after Germany in, in the, uh, Korea, Republic of Korea, a two-year assignment. Um, and I uh, went to, to China during that time, uh, on, really on vacation. Um, and so this I, is in the early 90s? So this would have been my first trip to China was 1994, summer of 1994. And I came with uh, my mom and sister and a friend, and we, we traveled to Xi'an. We wow. saw the Terracotta Warriors, of course, mm -hmm. uh, learned a little bit about Chinese history. We went to Shanghai, and I remember in 1994 in the summer, standing on the Bund, mm -hmm. looking out across at Pudong. Mm -hmm. And it was really, you know, farmer's fields. Um, but among the farmer fe farmer's fields was the Pearl TV Tower coming up and a, and a couple other small at the time, small buildings, but you could tell um, there was a, a a real sort of vitality, a real energy about the place, and it was easy to get a sense that this was a place that was moving and going to be moving uh, quickly. Uh, and then we went to Beijing. That was our last stop. And in Beijing, you know, we rode bicycles mm -hmm. around the cities. But it was a city still mostly uh, bicycles um, at the time, and we. You know, rode by Tiananmen Square and Zhongnan High, and back the when you could still just bike around there and walk could, around, there was the, no limitations. Yeah, exactly. That. The hutongs, and you can ride, and you got a sense of the political nature of Beijing versus the capital, financial center of Shanghai. But a strange thing happened. We on Friday night decided to go to the U.S. Embassy to uh, just the friend that I was traveling with. She had worked in a consulate overseas as an intern, and she said, you know. Sometimes the Marines will have a barbecue on Friday night. We should go and see if we can meet other Americans living in Beijing. This was pre-9-11. Mm -hmm. So the, the embassy, who is not like a fortress, mm -hmm. um, yeah. we literally walked up. This was when the embassy was in Shoshuejian, mm -hmm. down by old, Silk Street. The old Street. embassy, sure. And we literally walked up, showed the, the gate guard mm -hmm. our blue passports, and he just waved us in. And within two, three minutes, we were drinking Budweiser beer and eating hot dogs with the Marines. Mm -hmm. And one of the Marines asked me what I did. I told him I was a company commander in Korea, and I was on leave, uh, just traveling with my family and this friend. And he said, you know, there's an army captain here. He's the first China Foreign Area Officer to be posted in, uh, in Beijing, in, in the People's Republic of China. And I said, I'd love to meet him, uh, Patrick O'Rourke. I met him, and he told me all about the China Foreign Area Officer program. And he took us around Beijing. And I watched this American captain, fluent in Chinese, mm -hmm. uh, navigate himself and us through Beijing, through the city streets, and took us to a d bunch of uh, restaurants and different places. And I, I was very, I was, I was really impressed. And I said, uh, you know, if I stay in the army, I think this is what I would like to do. And wow. that's that's where it sort of great, started. amazing. Uh, so it wasn't Korean. <laughs> the serving in Korea wasn't enough to get you to say, gee, I want to learn Korean, but. No, I loved Korea, though. Mm. I mean, I enjoyed my tour in Korea. I just felt um, I wanted a challenge. Mm -hmm. um, and I felt that, you know, in looking at China uh, and, and given its size and its history, it was pretty clear to me that if you're interested in international issues and geopolitical issues in the future, China's going to be a big player. And the U.S. You know, needs people that understand China, that speak the language, that understand the the history, the economy, the military, and you know, all, all, all range of aspects when it comes to China. And, and, and I committed myself to that and, 
ever since, that's uh, that's what I've been pursuing. Wow. Who knew that drinking with Marines would have such far-reaching <laughs> consequences? You know, they... they thank goodness 9-11 happened. I, we're, not, we're not gotten in the embassy, that's for sure. And even now, uh, I remember my when I was leaving the, Be- the Beijing embassy here in 2018, they started to really limit the uh, amount of happy hours the Marines were having because yeah. they thought it was bad for morale to have kind of so much alcohol flowing around mm. and it wasn't seen as something that was befitting of the service. So That seemed good for morale when I participated. <laughs> well, it was also a time when there wasn't that much else to do in Beijing. So yeah. hanging out with uh, with other expatriates drinking was, was fun. So that was your first trip to Beijing. Fascinating. Uh, then when you came back, uh, was it as uh, one year as part of the, the language program? It was. I did another assignment uh, in Kuwait. Uh, for a year and a half. Um, this is after After Desert my tour in Storm. Korea. Um, this was uh, after my tour in Korea, which is 92 to 94. Did a, a tour in the Middle East uh, and then started my uh, uh, language training. It was interesting. When I was in my captain's course, I got a, a phone call. I had applied for the Foreign Area Officer Program in the Army, but, you know, these things are not guaranteed. That's the Army is, is about what the Army needs. It's not about what individual members of the armed forces need. And so, you know, I had um, one of my mentors was trying to help me get accepted into this program. Um, and I got a call one day and said, you've been accepted into the Foreign Area Officer Program. And I said, wow, this is fantastic. Um, and they said, in the uh, January 1997, you'll begin your Arabic language program. And I said, <laughs> Arabic, okay, sure. Uh, you know, whatever the Army needs. Mm-hmm. And uh, the woman said, well, you sound disappointed. And I said, well, I had applied for Chinese. So you could she, actually check off what language you wanted to Yeah, you, and you could put in your preferences. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she said, well, well, hold on a second. She put the phone down. Mm-hmm. And a couple minutes later, she came back and said, okay, in January 1997, you'll start the Chinese wow. language program. So, so all you have to do is ask. <laughs> my uh, life in, in, in about uh, 30 seconds... Uh, <laughs> took a, a very different uh, direction because uh, Arabic and Chinese language were at the same level mm-hmm. of difficulty. And so with the high DLAT score, they wanted to put me into a harder language. Mm-hmm. And so because I was asking for Chinese and they had needs for Chinese speakers, they were willing to do that. So I went to Monterey and, and did a year and a half of the Chinese language, uh, intense Chinese language program, and then uh, came back to China in the summer of 1998. So four years after I met uh, Patrick O'Rourke mm-hmm. in the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, um, I was back as a you were on your path foreign area officer uh, to study uh, Chinese language and and learn about China for a year. It's an orientation program, and you spend one year in country to learn about uh, the country. And so in that job, you're not working at the embassy as an official. You're there officially to learn for that for that full year. I know when I talked to executives when I worked at the AmCham in Shanghai, they were astounded that the U.S. government would take people out of service for a year or two to learn language. A, a number of executives said to me, oh, that would be great. I'd love to be able to learn Chinese <laughs> and take a year or two off and do that. But my company you know, will give me two weeks if I'm lucky. You know, we Army officers, uh, the arm, of all the branches of service, the Army has the best, uh, most comprehensive sort of foreign area officer training program compared to the other services. And we would get this reaction from other uh, branches of the military, from uh, foreign service officers, that, State Department officials, State Department mm-hmm. officials yeah. at the embassies, they would be, you know, because it was a year and a half of language in Monterey, it was a year in China, 
uh, orientation, really traveling for about half the time, and then uh, in school studying the language the other half of the time. And then it was, uh, uh, you can go to a civilian school and do a master's degree, and I had the opportunity to go to Harvard to do the Regional Studies East Asia program. So they put a lot uh, of, uh, tr you know, a lot of uh, uh, commitment, you know, they put a lot of training, they give you a lot of training, um, but the one thing I will say is the Army also has a very good way of extracting all of that uh, through the difficult jobs uh, that that you end up taking. And that's why I, I, once I completed the Foreign Area Officer Training Program, including graduate school, I had uh, about 10 years of, of really intense assignments and hard work. And, uh, but, you know, to be honest, you know, you're willing to do it given, you know, how much you've learned and, and how much you've benefited from the program. So can you remember one thing that year that you were here when you were supposed to be learning and traveling that struck you were like, wow, this is a fascinating place and I feel like this really contributed to my um, further work with the Army or with the U.S. government? Well, I, I, don't, I don't think I can think of one thing. I can think of a lot of things. I mean, it, it uh, had the opportunity during that time to travel to every province in China. And, um, and was that hard seat at the time? or It was everything. Uh -huh. um, our, the defense attache at the time, General Carl Eikenberry, um, and, and the Army attache, Roy Camphausen, uh, he was assistant at the time, but, but uh, he, they encouraged us to use all forms of transportation um, to try to meet people from all different sectors and all different backgrounds um, to get a, a real feel for the country. Um, and so I remember one trip traveling with my mom on Chinese boats from Shanghai all the way to Chongqing on wow. Chinese boats. Mm -hmm. And we traveled in, you know, third and fourth class. And uh, we, we met Chinese people. We got invited into their homes. And it really, it was a tremendous experience because, you know, often the Chinese will say, and I'm sure you've heard this quite a bit from the Chinese, you can't get a sense of China by, by coming to Beijing and looking around Beijing. Mm -hmm. Or Beijing and Shanghai. Yeah. Or Shanghai. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm able to say through my, you know, Army experience, you know, I have a, a, a much stronger, uh, more comprehensive feel for the country. And when they say there's poverty out there, I understand what they mean. I've traveled to some remote places in China, and I've, I've, I've seen the poverty. Um, and I've traveled by train, and I've traveled by plane, and I've, you know, I've traveled by boat, and I've seen the country, and I've engaged with the people. And so you come away, obviously, which a with a much, uh, you know, deeper understanding of China, although it's still a hard country to understand, even after all that. All that right? yeah, training and language and yeah. you know, trying to understand what's going on. Also, the pace of change is so fast that uh, we'll get to your returning here. But yeah. you know, even you meet people, and 10 years later, they're, you know, doing amazing things, and their entire province has changed the school that I taught English in Wuhan in 1992 when I went back there a couple of years ago it's literally a parking lot now and mm. all the teachers had moved to some other place and so the, the the pace of change is hard to keep up with and just get your head around I mean someday I want to to your point I want to travel to those places that I traveled to in 1998 and mm -hmm. 1999 uh, to get a sense I mean I've, I've been to some of them but but not nearly enough and uh, recently I went to Zhengzhou with my son we traveled on the overnight uh, train, and we went to uh, Wopu, you know, mm -hmm. the soft sleeper, and uh, went to Shaolin Temple, and th those were places I had been to in 1998, and so it was really um, 
I was quite struck by the changes and going back to a place that I had been more than 20 years before. So then you got your master's and then you had to start working for the army. Then I had to start working, absolutely. And so then you came back here and you were one of the army uh, officers here. How many were there and then what other branches were there? What does what, what the DAT office, the Defense Attaché office look like? Well, the Defense Attaché office is headed up by a one-star general and it rotates between the different branches. The current defense attache is, is Brian Davis, who I spent my year in 1998 with uh, and traveled with. He was my travel partner wow. and, mm-hmm. and very, very close uh, close friend of mine. I'm very pleased to see him become so successful and come back as the defense attache 20 years later. Um, but the uh, defense attache heads the office, and then each of the branches of service have their own attache. So you have an Army attache, Air Force, Navy, and Marines. Um, and then each of those sections has two or three um, assistant mm. attaches, and that's what I was. I was an assistant army attache uh, and served uh, in Beijing in that capacity. And basically, you know, you're, you're representing the U.S. government, the U.S. Army in particular in my case, um, to the Chinese People's Liberation Army uh, and to the foreign attaches that are uh, resident in uh, Beijing. You, uh, you know, your role is to clarify and explain uh, military policy, army policy in particular in my case, to those people. Um, and then I think, and finally, you know, you're, you are uh, in a position where you can advise the rest of the U.S. government, U.S. interagency, in particular Defense Department, um, but not just the Defense Department, uh, you know, other, other branches within the U.S. government and try to explain uh, U.S. or Chinese uh, uh, military uh, strategy and objectives. And so I did that and I enjoyed the job. It was, a, it was a great, it was my first job after Foreign Area Officer Training Program and I learned a lot. So what was the years that you were there, that you were the Assistant Army Attaché? I'm just trying to think of where the mill-mill relationship was because it's gone up and down a fair amount. No, it's a great question. Um, I came uh, as an Attaché in 2002 and then I went to the Pentagon in 2003. Uh, and in terms of the timing, uh, you have to remember, of course, the, this comes after a number of incidents which created crises in the U.S.-China relationship. So you can go back to 1996 with the Taiwan Missile Crisis where we sent aircraft carrier in, uh, in the Taiwan Strait. Very tense time in relations between the U.S. and China, but in particular between our militaries. 1999, the accidental bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. Uh, And then in 2001, uh, the uh, EP3 crisis where our aircraft collided with the Chinese aircraft and crash landed in Hainan Island and spent 12 days on the island before our crew was released. I was in Beijing in 1999 uh, during the embassy, uh, the Belgrade embassy bombing. And uh, I remember the tension that that created. I was traveling, in fact, with uh, the current defense attaché, Brian Davis. We were out uh, in Xinjiang, crossing into Kazakhstan. And I called back to the embassy just to report our location. Um, at the time, my colleague, Mick Riva, who was a Marine, answered the phone. And I said, hey, just wanted you to know Brian and I are crossing into Kazakhstan. And he said, OK, but I, I, I need to let you know that we've bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. Wow. And I said, well, why did we do that? And he said, I'm not sure, but it's getting pretty tense around here. Um, and uh, we we ended up staying out of China for another week or so until things uh, quieted down. 
uh, and then came back. Uh, and so, you know, these are uh, some pretty difficult uh, issues to work through in the U.S.-China relationship. What it made it more difficult, to be honest, was the conclusion of the Belgrade embassy bombing. You know, the U.S. side, of course, uh, claims pretty vigorously it was a mistake. Um, and the Chinese side, I think the official conclusion was it was a rogue element within the Department of Defense. And so the defense relationship takes the hit. Uh, in the EP3 crisis, the defense relationship takes the hit. Uh, there's a, there's a, at that time, there was a real effort, I think, by both U.S. leaders and Chinese leaders to kind of contain the, the uh, damage. And so as a result, you know, they didn't want it to affect the broader political relationship at the highest levels. And so put it squarely in the defense relationship, that makes our life uh, in the military a lot more difficult to try to bring relationships, relations back. So in 2002, you know, we're just really beginning to work through some of that. And when I was in the joint staff on, in 2003, uh, it, it was the same. I want to talk about your time on the joint staff. Yeah. Um, it was at a time when Secretary Rumsfeld was particularly strident about um, this interaction with China uh, and about the need for the DOD employees, both civilian and, and uniform, to be working on the global war on terror and not doing other things. And I know from my time working at the White House at that time that created some friction with the rest of the U.S. government. Um, when you were on the joint staff, mm -hmm. what was your role and, and how did you kind of enact it in this post 9-11 world under Secretary Rumsfeld? You know, it's a good question because I arrived there in um, uh, March, I think it was, of 2003. So it was right around the initiation of, uh, of our operation in Iraq, which lasted for quite some time. Um, you know, people say, well, the U.S. took its strategic attention away from China. And I think um, to a large extent, that's true, senior leaders were quite occupied in prosecuting a war in Afghanistan and a war in Iraq. And it's only natural. People have, leader, our leaders only have so much bandwidth. Um, but we didn't take our eyes off of China altogether. We still had experts and people at the working level who were focused on China. When I was on the joint staff, you'll recall, you know, because of China's growing economic strength, they were devoting, you know, increases of 15% annually to the military modernization. And we were watching that very closely. The National Defense Authorization Act of 2000, of course, called for the China Military Power Report to be done every year, which looks specifically at China's military modernization and growing capabilities, which seemed to be increasingly devoted to denying the U.S. access to the Asia-Pacific region in key areas. Uh, this anti-access area denial concept. And so we were watching specific capabilities the Chinese were developing that really were aimed at um, under, undermining a specific U.S. advantage. And those reports were done on an annual basis, and they would go, as I learned when I went to the National Security Council, they would go to the very top. Uh, and so people were aware um, of China's growing military capabilities, and that was one of the areas we looked at closely on the joint staff. Um, but yes, we're fighting a couple wars in the Middle East, and it took a lot of our attention. So um, there's no doubt that that uh, had an impact on our ability to deal with those issues. And on the joint staff, uh, was part of your job hosting Chinese military delegations when they came over? And can you describe what that's like, what they were looking to do, and what the Army or the joint staff was looking to do? What was the benefit of that from the US point of view? 
and did it work? What's, what do you think the goals were met? We did. We did it both ways. We would host the Chinese. I remember traveling with Under Secretary of Defense uh, Doug Fife uh, to China for I think they were called the Defense Policy Talks um, or the Defense Consultation DC uh, Policy Talks DCPC. I'm not, I'm not sure. I've, lo- I've I've sort of forgotten the specific nomenclature of those. But there were policy talks with uh, with uh, our counterparts in the military, chief of the general staff. And policy meaning kind of global military foreign and defense strategy, policy. Um, you know, a lot of those discussions, I mean, you could get frustrated with the, those discussions because um, clearly both sides had worked on their talking points um, before those meetings. Um, and there wasn't a lot of moving outside of those talking points at times. Uh, and, and again, remembering the time coming out of those incidents, uh, the Belgrade Embassy bombing, EP3 crisis, uh, this big Taiwan arms sales package in early 2001, and trying to, to sort of get the relationship back on track, um, you know, that was going to take time to build greater trust and work through some of the suspicion. Um, I remember, you know, our talking points on Taiwan, their talking points on Taiwan, never do the, do the two meet. Um, their, the Iraq war uh, was, was being prosecuted and the global war on terror. Um, we didn't have a lot of alignment in terms of our views in the Middle East and what was happening. Although the Chinese did not, um, you know, vehemently oppose what we were doing, they clearly had concerns about our military intervention. Um, and then on the area of North Korea, we were trying to build some greater cooperation, but um, they had concerns about North Korea. But I remember when I was on the Joint Staff in 2003, a PLA officer pulling me aside saying, you know, you've just unilaterally invaded Iraq. Uh, you know, we consider you to be as provocative an actor as we consider North Korea, which you know, it doesn't sit well uh, with, uh, with U.S. government officials. Um, and so it was a difficult time. Um, but those discussions uh, would continue. Um, I also uh, was the, one of the uh, uh, action the p- political military planners for Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Rick, uh, Dick Myers, when he came to China um, and engaged in talks with his counterparts. Um, I would say, you know, not... Um, not overly friendly, um, uh, not hostile, um, but difficult, but, but clearly uh, difficult at the time. I know one of the criticisms that Secretary Rumsfeld had and some who criticized this sort of military diplomacy was when the Chinese delegations come to the U.S., we would show them all of these um, bells and whistles, all these toys as a way of deterrence. That yes. is, if you guys want to build up your military, this is what you're going to be fighting, yeah. aircraft carrier or something else. Others who were critical of that approach said, yeah. oh, the Chinese have learned what uh, deterrence they should then deter and you know, what systems they should put forward. Do you have a view on whether or not that was successful or that was an um, impetus to China's own military development? Yeah, you know, the, they watched the Gulf War in 1991 very closely. And I think uh, were quite taken aback by the capabilities that we brought to the Middle East. Uh, and I remember in the 90s having discussions with the Chinese and, um, 
this term revolution in military affairs was one that they picked up on and they wanted to figure out how to adopt some of the capabilities that they saw during the Iraq war. In a sense, I think it scared them. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, I think uh, it motivated them to begin to think about how to develop their own capabilities to try to catch up with uh, the United States and, and, and other leading militaries. Now, we would bring the PLA, as you say, to the United States and show them our capabilities uh, for, for deterrence reasons. And I think there's, there's clearly there's rationale uh, in that. Um, you know, you try not, obviously, to show them super sensitive and, and uh, systems that, you know, you worry that they'll bring back and steal. Um, but clearly, they also probably learned. From that experience, but I, my, own, I, I come down on the side of the deterrence. Uh, I think effort was worthwhile, and I think it probably also had that effect. And I think, I think that, I think that's the that was the right thing to do. You bring up an interesting point of where the PLA was in the late '80s. In yeah. some ways, it was basically unchanged from Mao's days. Right. It was a kind of 1950s people's war doctrine. Equipment was quite old since the Korean War, since we fought the Chinese in the Korean War. And so, yeah. uh, as you say, I think the Persian Gulf War really opened their eyes about what uh, what should change. And there's so much open source material about revolutionary military affairs, about uh, digital modernization. That, in some ways, what um, tank or, or item, specific item we show one kernel from the PLA is not going to have the same sort of effect as how much is just available in, in the press about what's happening. In, no, I think in, that's uh, right. I think that's right. And I think the biggest motivator was watching the Gulf War mm-hmm. and that it wasn't coming over and seeing a U.S. capability on, on display. Um, yeah. There were other factors that led the Chinese to make those uh, strategic decisions. But on the Joint Staff, um, you also mentioned that uh, Secretary Rumsfeld, his policy, he also um, pushed a policy of uh, uh, where we had to approve each and every interaction between a Department of Defense official and uh, PLA. Uh, And that, you know, that had the effect on the interaction of kind of slowing it down and being very cautious about it. And so there wasn't really a huge amount of, of interaction during that time between mm-hmm. our two militaries, to be honest. I mean, we had to approve the PLA band going mm-hmm. to China. You know, th- that was the level. Uh, and we had to go in and brief Assistant Secretary Rodman on every single event, every mm-hmm. single meeting. Uh, so the other aspect of my account when I was on the Joint Staff was working with Taiwan to help them enhance their defense in the context of our Taiwan Relations Act. Uh, and so I traveled often to Taiwan and would meet uh, with the Taiwan uh, military. Uh, and we would make recommendations for ways that they could enhance their defense, systems they could buy to try to integrate into their military. I helped, I participated in their annual military exercise, Hangwang mm-hmm. uh, exercise. And, and you uh, participated as an observer? As an observer mm-hmm. on the U.S. delegation. Um, and and how, so, how were the capabilities? How did you observe? What, what do you recall about that? I recall thinking, uh, you know, they, they've got a tough situation. Um, you, this was at a time where there was a lot of debate on the number of missiles that the PLA had deployed uh, in Fujian and other areas directly across from uh, Taiwan. And to be honest with you, it was a function of how many days they could hold out before uh, to allow time for the U.S. military to come in. And so there was there was no scenario where... You know, Taiwan could prevail in defending. So it it uh, it you know really struck me that you know we 
we have work to do with Taiwan. We need a strong relationship with Taiwan, and we need to help Taiwan. And we have a law, the Taiwan Relations Act, where we need to do that. Uh, made a lot of friends, developed uh, good relationships with uh, my counterparts in the Taiwan military. And it was, it, to me, it was one of the, the real uh, positive aspects of my time on the Joint Staff. Right, where you're not just reporting up and getting denied working with right. another country, you're actually working on something with a, with a military counterpart. Um, I want to talk uh, about your time moving from the Joint Staff to the National Security Council. First, how did that happen? And second, what did you notice different from working on the Joint Staff to working in the White House? Well, I remember it happened fast. I was coming back from China uh, on the trip with the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and I, I don't remember whether it was General Myers or uh, Brigadier General Gary North, who was one of my bosses, who said, you know, Steve Hadley is looking uh, for an executive assistant um, from a uh, military officer or some uh, civilian from the Department of Defense. Would you like to put your name in the hat for that? And I couldn't think of a, a better job. I said, absolutely. Um, I'd only been on the joint staff for a month. And so I put my uh, resume forward to the White House, um, had an interview with Steve Hadley, um, and then didn't hear anything for some time. Um, and I thought, well, they must have given the job to somebody else. And then I was in Taiwan on a trip with the joint staff, having hot pot with some Taiwan friends. And I got a call from the White House Situation Room and said, this is the White House Situation Room. We know you're in Taiwan. We know you come back on Tuesday. And you have a meeting scheduled with Dr. Condoleezza Rice for Wednesday at noon. Uh, can you be back by then? And I said, do you want me to get on an airplane now? <laughs> and they said, no, you don't need to do that. Um, and uh, two days after meeting with uh, Dr. Rice, I was working at the National Security Council. So it happened uh, It happened very quickly. Um, Condi Rice and Steve Hadley, Condi was National Security Advisor at the time, and Steve was her deputy. They liked to have somebody in the front office from the State Department, and they wanted somebody from the Department of Defense. Um, and that largely had to do with um, you know, managing the relationship uh, between Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense and making sure that they felt you know, they had people there that were mindful of the two departments' equities. And so they made a point of having their executive assistants represent the Department of Defense and Department of State. And I thought it was a very good policy. And for people who haven't been in the Situation Room or the West Wing, what's the job of uh, that kind of uh, position? And how do you describe it? And before you took the job, I'm sure you didn't know what you were getting into. Right. But after you started, what, what was the job? What were you doing? Well, uh, you're sort of, I, I was the executive assistant to the deputy national security advisor, Steve Hadley. Uh, Mike Ma, who was a State Department officer, was Condi Rice's executive assistant. Steve Hadley, during my interview, described the job to me um, in ways that I think were meant to scare me. Um, he just said the, the pace of this job, the word he used to describe it was relentless. Uh, he described a normal day, um, which was showing up at the office at 5.30 in the morning and going home at 10 o'clock, six, six, six days a week, um, you know, with a constant, constant, you know, intensity that, that sort of never dies down. And after he described it, I remember during the interview, he looked at me and he said, have I convinced you not to pursue the position? And I said, no, I was kind of a glutton for punishment at the time. I was not married. I was single. I said, bring it on. You know, I'm ready for it. 
and he was right. It was, an and this is also job. pre kind of Twitter world and pre kind of connectivity on every device. Like there were not many people who, when they went home, were still working. Mostly there was work and there was home. Yeah, you could separate yeah. more. And I think we were moving into, and I remember a year or two into my job in the White House, I got my first BlackBerry. Mm -hmm. Life changed after that. It never shut down. <laughs> um, but, you know, what I learned in that job, because I would, uh, in one of the roles that I played was the interface between the White House Situation Room, for example, and the Deputy National Security Advisor and National Security Advisor. Uh, and then each of the agencies, I would have a counterpart in those that were working for the different cabinet secretaries. Um, and you, you, know, you have a sense the National Security Advisor and Deputy National Security Advisor, the world is a, a very busy place with a lot happening. And I heard one description, I think it was Brent Scowcroft, who said, it's like a, a cook who's got 20 different pots and half of them are ready to boil over at any time. And where do you turn your attention to? And that, on a daily basis, you know, that's how you felt. Things were coming in. What information do I share with the Deputy National Security Advisor? Do I pull him out of this meeting? Um, what decisions does he have to make uh, in any particular hour? At the end of the day, what is the, what's the, the paperwork he's got to get through in terms of memos, action memos, info memos, and others that are going to the president or going to Capitol Hill? It's just uh, trying your best to help uh, the deputy national security advisor and national security advisor manage all of that information and, and, and all of that activity. Um, and uh, it was exhilarating and challenging and exciting all at the same time. Um, I want to get to your time working on China-Taiwan issues in uh, the East Asia directorate. Um, did you find the workload a little bit easier and that you weren't responsible for the whole world? You could really just focus on one or two political entities and not, not the whole world? Well, I thought that would be the case. Um, you know, I'd known for some time that I was going to... Uh, moved to the Asia director and become the China director. I think I knew for six or seven months um, while I stayed in, in the capacity of executive assistant. So I had some time to think about the, uh, the job. Uh, but a couple weeks before I moved over to the Asia directorate, uh, Steve Hadley pulled me in and said, we've decided also it's not typical. Normally the Korea-Japan director uh, has the uh, six-party talks account. In, in the case when I was in the front office, it was Victor Cha, of course. Mm. Um, Meaning North Korea, dealing with North Korea. Dealing mm. with North Korea mm. in the context of the six-party talks nuclear negotiations. And so Steve said, we've decided that we're going to give you that portfolio as well. And I jokingly said, I'm not interested. Uh, <laughs> I said, uh, you know, I've got a plan for the China director job. I haven't been thinking about the North Korea job. I was, you know, he knew I was joking. I'm obviously going to do what's, what's asked of me. But that presented, you know, a real uh, learning curve for me. Um, you know, I'd lived in Korea, but uh, by, by no stretch of the imagination was I a Korea expert like Victor Cha. Um, but Victor was very helpful. Um, and, you know, I think he convinced me that uh, I would quickly get up, uh, you know, up to speed on the issues, which, which I was able to do. And then it was really a function of, you know, having that good relationship with Steve Hadley where I could, had a good direct communication channel 
where I could bring him up to speed. On what and by this time, sorry, he's National Security Advisor, is that and right? And by that time, you're exactly right, when President Bush won the election. So I had worked for Steve for nine months when he was deputy in the front office, and then he became National Security Advisor, and I was his executive assistant for uh, another two plus years with him when he was National Security Advisor. And so uh, when I became the China director, uh, I also took on the Six Party Talks account, and that involved a lot of travel to Asia to uh, meet with our uh, allies in Seoul and in Tokyo. Uh, and we had a good deal of cooperation at the time with the Chinese. I actually, in the end, thought it made a lot of sense to have the China director working on the Six Party Talks account because it was the first time, I think, in the 30 plus years of US-China relations where we were working with China on an issue of strategic importance to the region. And so to have somebody who also has the China account, given how important the cooperation with China was, and the fact that China was the chair of the six-party talks, in the end, it made a great deal of sense. So why do you think, recognizing that it made sense in retrospect, but from Steve Hadley's point of view, why do you think he gave you that opportunity to excel and kind of added to what would have been a plenty full job of just being the China director and said, yeah, uh, Paul, I really want you to handle the six-party talks as well? Well, I'm not entirely sure. I think part of it, it was a recommendation from Dennis Wilder and, and Victor Cha. And I think they felt that, you know, because I had had such a close working relationship with Steve, um, and the head of the delegation, uh, the negotiating team was uh, Chris Hill, uh, Assistant Secretary for East Asia. And I think uh, the White House, uh, you know, wanted to have somebody as part of the team, you know, who had good channels of communication with the National Security Advisor and, and the leadership in the White House. And so I think given I had worked for three years on the first floor of the West Wing, mm -hmm. And uh, you know, knew the folks that worked there, and obviously had a close working relationship with Steve. I think people felt that made good sense, and it was a it was an important issue. And we were actually moving the ball forward when I came on board in uh, summer of 2007. One of the first things that happened when I became the White House rep to the Six Party Talks is uh, North Koreans shut down their nuclear reactor at uh, Yongbyon, and they allowed international uh, inspectors and a U.S. team in to stay at uh, Yongbyon. And in October, about six months later, we negotiated uh, within the six-party talks. We, we also negotiated bilaterally with the North Koreans to uh, disable the key three, three key facilities at Yongbyon. Uh, we were working very closely, obviously, with our allies, uh, which is critically important. Um, but we, were also, we also had some good working relations with the Chinese. And one of the things I noticed that's different to today from today is when we were working on this issue, it really was focused on denuclearization. How can we convince Kim Jong-il at the time, the father of Kim Jong-un, to abandon his efforts to develop this uh, nuclear capability, nuclear deterrence? Geopolitics was always there, kind of in the background, but really the, the main sort of driver was this effort at denuclearization. As I think about things today, given the tense U.S.-China relationship and the frictions that we have, and I think, you know, the uncertainty that President Trump brings, the fact that he announced he would meet with Kim Jong-un without even mentioning it first to our allies, Japan, 
Korea, of course, knew because they were part of the conversation. But that surprised the Chinese, of course. And, and so I think what you see today is it's mostly about geopolitics. And it seems less about denuclearization. And I think that's one of the things that's preventing the diplomacy. Each side seems to be looking for a way strategically to get an advantage over the other. Uh, China may not be willing to help as much. They want to keep North Korea close. To use it almost, you know, as leverage in its relations with the United States. And so I think this is, to a certain extent, you know, the Trump administration worked very closely in the first term with the Chinese in the first year uh, with this maximum pressure campaign. Once the North Koreans came to the table for diplomacy, I don't think there's been enough effort to work with the Chinese to get them on board. Speaking of that, so can you just walk us through, say, one of the six-party talks meetings in Beijing? And I know there were countless ones here, but how do they go? And how do the Chinese do at hosting those? And were they honest brokers? If a document yeah. kind of circulated around, did they give everyone time to talk? Or did they um, slip it under your door at 3 a.m. and no one had, had the time to react? How, how did you see that leadership take place? And how was that interaction? Well, these uh, are very complicated and messy sort of negotiations. And they would take place at the Ayutthaya, the state guest house. And, um, you know, all of the, you know, the Russians and the Chinese and the Koreans and Japanese and the Americans would all show up and have their negotiating teams. And there was a lot of shuttling back and forth between the teams. And did you guys stay out there or did you stay at another hotel? We usually stayed at the St. Regis. Um, Which was near the embassy at the time. My, if my memory serves me no, correctly, that's right. mm -hmm. I think that's yeah. what we, I think mm -hmm. we did. We stayed at St. Regis. Um, in terms of the role that the Chinese played, um, look, I think it's a very difficult role for them to play, number one. It's not, not, not easy. I think one frustration we would have with the Chinese is I think we felt we had much more of a sense of urgency in solving the problem. And we often had the sense that the Chinese side was trying to manage the problem. And, uh, you know, and a manifestation of that would be if the North Koreans would come in with their opening gambit, which was off the reservation completely. It shouldn't even be given any, uh, you know, recognition. The Chinese would then hear the position of the Americans and, and the others, which were normally much more reasonable. And the Chinese tendency at times was to sort of split it in half. And we would go back to the Chinese and say, no, that is not your role. When the North Koreans come in with a position that's completely out of line, you have to put pressure on the North Koreans and tell them this is unacceptable. And, um, and you would back channel that. You wouldn't say it in front of all of the members of the six party talks. You would pull yeah, the would, Chinese aside and say, hey, exactly. Guys. We would have bilateral meetings. Mm -hmm. So we, there were there were times where you'd have all of the parties together. Mm -hmm. Kind of a plenary meeting. Plenary with session. And that those were those discussions were normally uh, fairly stilted, you mm -hmm. know, in, in the discussions. It was the meeting bilaterally and doing the shuttle diplomacy around the Diaoyutai State Guest House. Uh, where you would have these much more sort of candid conversations and you would try to push your agenda or push your issues in certain in certain directions. And I think that um, was our frustration with the Chinese. We, 
we didn't want them to be necessarily, you know, complete honest brokers where they're representing everyone's position. If positions aren't reasonable, the Chinese need to call them out. Um, but for the most part, we had uh, some good cooperation. I think the last six-party meeting I attended was in December of 2008. So President Bush left office in 2000, January 2009. Um, and it was clear by that point the North Koreans had sort of given up on the process. And that was because Kim Jong-il had a stroke in August. And they very quickly moved into this leadership succession process. His father, uh, Kim Il-sung, had thought long and hard about who was going to take over for him. And it was pretty clear when he died that Kim Jong-il, his son, was going to. But Kim Jong-il had three sons and hadn't figured out who was going to take over for him. So it became a very messy domestic political process. And we realized that when we went in the fall back to Pyongyang to try to work out a verification agreement. Uh, and it was clear that the North Koreans weren't really willing to play ball anymore. And that became 100% evident at the plenary session in December 2008. Uh, the Obama administration tried to get something back on track, but the North Koreans moved into a period of provo provocation with missiles and ultimately a nuclear test and, and the rest is history. Right. So is it your sense that if that hadn't happened... If Kim Jong-il hadn't had a stroke, there might have been some chance of actually addressing the North Korean nuclear program? People would ask us when we came back from the negotiations, we'd come back to D.C., is Kim Jong-il really going to give up his nuclear weapons? And the answer we would give is, we don't really know, but we think he's at least taken out an option to do so if the conditions presented to him are appealing. And so we were working on a, an iterative process uh, where, you know, the North Koreans take steps to disable the three key facilities at Yongbyon. That, the next phase of that was dismantlement, where you actually begin to take down the plutonium production uh, facility. But, of course, we knew there was a uranium enrichment program out there, and we hadn't really gotten at that they had given these us are two different programs to get fissile material for nuclear weapons. two different processes yep. and and the plutonium production process was at the Yongbyon nuclear uh, production factory turns out that uh, at least a part of their uranium enrichment program is also at Yongbyon uh, that was seen uh, in the Obama administration by I think Sig Heckler when he went for a visit so we knew that was out there. The North Koreans had given us a declaration in the summer of 2008 that we knew was not complete because it didn't have the highly enriched uranium program on there. That's why the verification program was so important. We had to get a strong verification program and agreement with the North Koreans that we could verify and inspect to determine what they gave us, whether it was true or not. We knew through our own intelligence that it was not complete. And so that made the verification plan much more important. But by that time, things had fallen apart. And where were the Chinese on the need for a verification plan? I think they supported it as well. Uh, I think the differences probably were we would want a much more aggressive one, mm -hmm. which called you know for sort of on-site inspections, mm -hmm. inspections at any time, mm -hmm. snap inspections. And the Chinese might be, you know, given, you know, China's own history and proclivity to not reveal their own capabilities and intentions, um, might be more sympathetic to the North Koreans about those kind of issues. But we didn't, we weren't able to get into those levels of details mm -hmm. because it was clear the North Koreans had walked away, basically. 
So maybe wrapping up, thinking about what you learned in the six-party talks process and through your career in the Army, picking it up a level, what do you think works in dealing with China and what, what successes can we build on going forward? Well, it's a great question and it's very applicable today uh, when there's a re-examination of how to, to deal with China. Um, I think, you know, as we look for example now, uh, we might end up having a phase one trade deal here this week, um, leaving phases two and, and three for the future. Um, I don't anticipate it will be the world's greatest deal, I think, but nevertheless, um, some good news is, I think, welcomed at this point. I think one of the things that uh, the Trump administration, I think, has tried to do, uh, which I think is fine, is to be very clear with the Chinese uh, where we have disagreements, where we see China's policies and behaviors as undermining our own interests. Um, and I think we need to be much more clear with China, and we need to push back where they are undermining our interest. Now, clearly, the Trump administration has shown they're willing to, to do that. Um, but I also would hold out the notion that collaboration is important, too. Uh, we will need to work with China uh, in areas where it's in our interest to do so. I don't think we need to cooperate with China just to try to be nice to the Chinese. We need to cooperate with the Chinese in, on certain issues because it's in our interest to do so. Uh, and so I think, you know, we're going to have to figure out, it seems to me at the end of the day, as Steve Hadley likes to say, how to be strategic competitors, but also how to be strategic cooperators. And that's really the challenge going forward. Paul Henley, so great to see you. Thanks again for your leadership on your podcast and uh, wonderful to spend time with you here today. Thanks so much for having me on, James. I really appreciate it. Paul Hanley speaking with me from Beijing. You've been listening to the U.S.-China Dialogue podcast from Georgetown University. I'm your host, James Green.